Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. We're in Matthew chapter 5 again. We will begin today in verse 21. And we have reached a section called the Antitheses. A thesis is something you write or a statement that you may make. An antithesis means that you have more than one thesis, but you are going to say something against that or in addition to that. And that's what Jesus is about to say. He's going to tell us six times, you have heard it said of old, but I say unto you. That's incredible authority that had to have blown their minds for him to take the very commandments from the book of Exodus chapter 20 and and to take that and say, well, you heard it said, but I say unto you. And he really takes it to a whole nother level. He says, you've heard it said of old not to commit murder, but I say to you. And he'll go to adultery. He'll talk about divorce. He'll talk about swearing by oaths, letting our yes be yes. He'll talk about retaliation. You've heard it said, there's an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, and then last of all, loving our enemies. He says, you've heard it said of old that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I say unto you. There will be six of them, and we'll take a look starting with the one on murder today in verse 21. Jesus has debunked the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. As a matter of fact, the very last verse we read in the last section, he says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, then you will not enter into the kingdom of God. So he has pretty well debunked that. And now he is here and he is about to take us to a whole nother way of thinking about righteousness. Because here is the whole point of this whole section. Many a man can stand in the judgment of men and we would be fine because they are bound and limited to what they see us do. It is a judgment of externals. But when we stand before the all-seeing God, then there is an entirely different look that he takes. He looks within us. He looks at our motive for why we do the things we do. And I will tell you, every single time through the last 40-something years that I have preached this passage, I always come under serious conviction. Matter of fact, I was awake uh, in the middle of the night, got up, spent some time praying to God, just thinking about some of these things. It really touches my heart because the doing part I can pretty much handle, you know, the checklist and stuff. But when God really looks at our hearts and he looks at the motives behind what we do, it's a whole different ball game. And that's what he's about to do here. Now, yeah, they went from 10 commandments, the Jews did, to 600 
and 13. We've already told you about that. <coughs> they are not written in Jesus' time when he was preaching this sermon, but a couple of hundred years later or so, they would finally write down all 613 of those little requirements and all of the details. That was called the Mishnah. And then after that, the Mishnah was so entailed it had to be explained. So they came out with a Talmud, which means a teaching. They had one that originated in Jerusalem, one that had originated in Babylon. So they had two of them. So you got two Talmuds to explain the Mishnah, to explain the 613 commandments that all started with just 10 that God gave us. We can make a mess out of something, can we not? And today, I think righteousness is still confusing to us, and I hope that Jesus is going to help us some in these uh, few weeks ahead that we have in this passage. Because nowadays, it's either like a horse race or it doesn't even matter. You got some people who are like, well, you know, uh, women shouldn't cut their hair, wear makeup, whatever. I, I guess there's still churches like that. I, I, I don't know. But they're all kind of little details and things like that. And, and uh, man, alive, I grew up in a church where women didn't wear pants. And, and I, I remember someone asked me one time at Cornerstone, do y'all wear pants? And I said, well, I, I personally have since I've been here and um, intend to keep on doing it. But I'm just saying to you that you either have it as a horse race or a contest to see who can outdo the other denomination or the other church or whatever, and I don't care how conservative you are. I don't care if you think, buddy, you have hit the nail on the head. I'll promise you there will always be somebody further to the right of you, and there will always be somebody to the left of you. you I, I guarantee you it works both ways. The other side of the coin, though, is, is that it just doesn't even matter, that live however you want to, that Jesus came along in such a misunderstanding here that when Jesus came along, he was a kinder, gentler version of the God of the Old Testament. And, and, and anything you read in the Old Testament, you can just forget about it. It doesn't even matter anymore. All of that is gone. As a matter of fact, if you think that's a recent move, about 150 A.D., a guy named Marcion, who was a Gnostic, he came along and he began to put together a Bible, actually. It, we would call it that. He took all of the Old Testament books out. The only gospel he used in his collection was the Gospel of Luke. And he took various other pieces of Scripture and he put it together, but he only put in his Bible the things that suited him. And I can tell you, as crazy as that may sound, him being a Gnostic, it makes sense. And, and, and Gnosticism is pretty entailed, but it was a heresy within the early church. And one of its main tenets was uh, uh, thinking on dualism. In other words, they believed that if I get mad and hit you in the mouth, that's not really me. That's my flesh, and it's totally separate from who I actually am. So don't judge me by what I do. If I rob a bank, hey, that was just my flesh. Sorry about that. But for me personally, and there'll be somebody say, well, you know he has a good heart. 
I promise you there's not a man on death row that somebody's not saying right now, but you know he has a good heart. That is a great description of Gnosticism. It's where you take what they do and separate it from who they are. And let me tell you something. Jesus is about to unite those two. He's about to tell us that you do what you do because of who you are. And he is going to teach us about that. One more thing I would say before we look at his first antithesis. Today we have kind of along the lines of progressive thinking and the more liberal views on Jesus and the Bible. It's like we tried to separate Jesus from the Old Testament. And I I can tell you, this is a move within the church. It's like Jesus came along, I already told you, he's kinder, gentler, he's a sweeter version of God. It's almost like you must have, I think the assumption is that Jesus came along and said, well, you know, uh, the, the father was, was, was pretty tough. Uh, I'm going to be a little easier on you, more loving and more kind and all of that. You're about to see Jesus dismantle that whole thing. But it progresses on because then some people separate Jesus from Paul. They're people that would not give you a dime for anything that Paul has to say when he addresses marriage and when he addresses the role of the husband and the role of the wife and the structure of the church and all of those things. They hate Paul for that, and they just keep referring back to, well, Jesus this and Jesus that. Then the next thing they do sometimes is separate Jesus from Scripture even. They'll take some things that Jesus said and wear them out. And then they take other things that Jesus said and they hardly even mention them. I've told you before, the shortest chapter in the whole Bible would have to be Matthew 7. We'll get to it before long. Judge not. That's it. That's as far as anybody goes. And if you just read a few verses further, you would understand that, well, the judge not thinking that we have is totally different than what Jesus was saying because Jesus is going to go right on and refute that way, that interpretation that people have nowadays, that if something's right or wrong, it's none of our business, and, and what people do in their lives, if they like it and they feel good about it, it might be good for them whether we like it or not. And what's true for you may not be true for me. And all of that foolishness, it just takes Jesus and rips him right out of Scripture. And I think others have gone a step further in taking Jesus even out of the church. Don't need the church. Don't need to be a part of the church. I can just kind of do my own thing. Me and Jesus, Tom T. Hall wrote that song. We have our own thing going. We ought to resurrect that old fine tune because it does speak a powerful truth that a lot of people believe. That Jesus and I, we got our own thing. I don't go to church. We just stay at home. Uh, we just do our thing. We worship God in our own way and all of that. There is no way that you can look at Jesus Christ and say, I love you and I care about you, but your bride, boy, does she ever get on my nerves. Just think if somebody walked up to you and told you that. I love you, but I hate your wife. I hate your bride. I don't want to be around her. don't want to see her. I want to withdraw from it, and I want to be really public about it. I want people to know that I am independent and that we have our own way of looking at these things. Some have even separated Jesus from history. They have totally turned him into, instead of a savior, he's just an encourager. 
He had some sweet things to say. He really didn't die for our sinfulness. He died because the old religious people hated him and they wanted to get rid of him. And instead of being a savior, he's more of a teacher or of an example for us to follow. Now, I say all of that because you are about to hear from Jesus himself. And I would venture to say that most of the people who like to make up their own Jesus never ever venture into this chapter because Jesus is about to teach us some things from his own lips. He starts with murder. Verse 21 of chapter 5, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now, a couple of things here. The command in the Old Testament is not just thou shalt not kill. It is you should not murder. And and there's a couple of different words for killing uh, that are different than the word for murder. And so this is a word that means unjustified homicide. When you take someone's life... uh, Phoneo is, uh, or phonuo is the word in the Greek, and rastak is the word in the Hebrew. Uh, and it means to take someone's life without any justification. As a matter of fact, to just tell you how simple God made the commandments. The commandment, thou shalt not murder, is lo rastak. Two words. Lo means no. Rostog means murder. <laughs> no murder. And that's it. That's all that God said. That commandment was two words long. When he gets to the seventh commandment, he says, Lo not off. Lo not off. Two words. No adultery. Okay? And then when he gets to the eighth commandment, he says, Lo got knob. Lo got knob is no stealing. Okay? How clear can you be? He says, No murder, no adultery, and no stealing. That way he could look at us one day and say, what part of no didn't you get? Two words, L-O is no. And he was very simple. Now, we go from that to a tangled mess where religion stepped in. And when the Jews were finished with all of this, you can tell they totally misunderstood all of this that God had given them. Jesus said, you heard it said, that if you do murder you're going to be liable to the court. Now, boy, that's kind of revealing as well because we know human beings have this thing about if I don't have to go to jail, I'm okay. Uh, As long as I'm not liable to the court. And he says, well, if you do murder because they will judge your externals, they just see what you do, you will go to court and you will be liable to the authorities. But he says, I don't just look at what you do. I look at why you did it. And verse 22, he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. You will. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing. That's the word reka. It's an Aramaic word. You may have reka in your Bible. I know some of the old English translations have Reka, which I doubt very many people have a clue as to what that word means. Reka is a word that 
really was like looking at someone with disdain. It was almost, uh, for lack of a better way of saying, it's like just flipping them off with your finger, really. It's not so much what the word means because we're not real sure exactly what the literal meaning is, but it is a, to speak disdain toward somebody. He said, if you do that, you good for nothing, save how they're trying to translate record. You shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. But then he goes on, he says, but whoever says you fool, you shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, what is his point here? Well, he's trying to teach us that, look, murder is not committed with the hands. It's committed in the heart. And that murder is something you may be guilty of way before you ever put your hands around somebody's throat. He is not taking murder and lightening up on it and giving us an out. He is telling us, look, I'm not just looking at what the court looks at. Yeah, you'll go to court, but, but, but that's not the only thing that's going to happen because the court will look at what you did. I am going to look at the motive behind all of this. And he starts with the word angry. He said, I tell you, if you're just angry, and, and we have to really look at what he means by angry. You remember there are two words in the Greek for anger. One's thumos, that's that losing your temper, flying off the handle, getting angry, jumping up and down. Just, man, you went from like zero to berserk in like two seconds flat. And usually those people go from berserk back to zero. Uh, it happens quickly. That's not the word here. The word here is orgezo, or we say orge is one of the noun forms of it. This is the more passive, aggressive kind of anger. It is a settled malice that just rests in our hearts. It's almost like, oh yeah, I saw what they did. I didn't say anything. Boy, I had to bite my tongue. <laughs> that never really works, does it? I didn't say anything. But I'll tell you one thing, I, you know, his day will come. And buddy, that's the kind that he is talking about here because this is the kind of anger that you have to nurse it. Boy, you don't forget things. You, you keep score. You got it in the back of your mind and that anger is deep in your soul. And you know us, we'll forget about even some of the most important things in the world. So we kind of have to keep it on the front burner. We have to re nurse that resentment and that bitterness and, and keep it warm. You know, you want to keep that fresh because that person deserves what's coming. And you just have to decide when you are going to let them have it. And they may see you and you might smile and you might shake their hand. And you might they may not even know that you're angry with them. But deep down inside, you've got something in you that is eating you alive. And it refuses pacification. You just don't, you don't even want to have a conversation about they're sorry. They did not mean to do what they did. You will avoid that. You don't even want to hear about that, hey, look, I'm willing to wear that one. I'm willing to take responsibility for that. You don't want that. The anger feels so much better. As a matter of fact, it, it, it is just, uh, uh, well, think about the word orge, and you can think of some other words we get from that. It is a, just a euphoria inside of you. You just feel so good. It gives you a kind of a dominance over the person that you're so angry with. Matter of fact, in 2 Timothy 3, 
Verse 3, Paul told Timothy, he said, in the end times people will be unloving, malicious gossips, and without self-control. He says they'll be brutal, they'll be haters of good. But another thing he tells them, they will be irreconcilable. It doesn't matter if you take the elder that made that person mad and take him out and shoot him, burn his house down, run his family out of town, whatever you do, it's never, ever going to be enough. Whether he was right or wrong, it doesn't matter. But it, it's, boy, it is just something inside that you nurse and you hold on to. And it begins to affect you. And, and you remember bitterness is drinking like drinking poison and waiting on somebody else to die. It eats you up. It eats up the container that it is in. It dissolves that. And so the one that is really suffering is the one who is holding to this ridiculous anger. He says, and whoever says to your brother, you good for nothing, that word of contempt. He said, I'm telling you, even when you're thinking about what all's wrong with that person. When you have these little conversations with your friends, you know, the one you tell things to that you never tell anybody else because you know he or she's not going to tell anybody. And of course, he's got or she's got somebody she always tells things to because she knows they're never going to tell anybody. When you have those conversations and you say something contemptuous about that person, and Jesus is not using something horrible here. He's just saying you speak contemptuously about that person. You act like they're stupid. You, you make fun of their shortcomings. He said, I'm telling you, when you are at that point in your heart and in your feelings for them, he said, I tell you, you are already, the court won't lock you up. But he said, in the sight of God, you are already guilty enough to send to a fiery hell. Man. He says, and then later you'll be tried even before the Supreme Court. That's, that, that was the Sanhedrin. Uh, uh, it, it just meant those who sit together. That was the highest court. But he says, I'm telling you, even after you've been to the Sanhedrin, the highest court in Judaism, he said, I can tell you now, you still got to stand before God. And you may be found guiltless in man's court. But before God, he says, I know your heart. Man, just think, boy, if we did lock people up for excessive anger, and Steve Owens wouldn't have a day off for the next 45 years. He'd be doing paperwork. We'd have to build a jail as big as Dallas Stadium to hold all of them. But we don't try you for that. God says, I do. He says, I look deep in your heart. That acid you just keep nursing. That vengeance that you hold on to. He even says, if you look at them and say, you fool. Now, I grew up. Because we're legalists too, if we're not careful. I grew up thinking you can call them anything you want to. Don't call them a fool. I was told that when I was a kid, really. Don't call them a fool. Call them a fool, you'll go to hell. The Bible says it. Jesus could have used a hundred different words. He's making a point. He's not saying this one word, moreno or moron, we would translate it. 
He, as a matter of fact, I'll even tell you this. Jesus actually himself uses the word later, and he calls some people fools. The very same word. So it has nothing to do with the word. It has to do with the heart. He could have given us probably a hundred different examples, but he said, even when you're at the point where you're insulting them, and this is not an insult of intellect here. We think about morons as stupid people. No, when you call someone a moron in this context, you are questioning not their intellect, but their moral character. You're telling them you're dull, you're useless, you're worthless, you're, 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 your life means nothing. You are, you're being vicious in, in your thinking about them. He says, when I tell you, when you are at the name-calling level, he says, you are already in serious, serious trouble. Well, he says, even at that point, he says, you're guilty enough to go to a fiery hell. And here's the word he uses for hell. It's not Hades, it's Gehenna. It is that part of Hades, the abode of the dead, where those go that are going to be tormented forever. He says, I can tell you, you deserve hell before you ever put your hands on the person. If you never choke him to death, if he never, if he dies and doesn't even know about what you nursed in your soul, he says, I'm telling you, you are already guilty enough to go to a fiery hell. And did you kind of notice there was a progression of thought? You started out with some inward resentment. That was that anger, and then it moved to a spoken insult, reka, and then you really got serious with malicious talk when you moved to the third stage and began to question their very character. Now, I can tell you, hatred and anger had already been addressed by God. If you look in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 17, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. People always like to say, well, that's that old Levitical law. Well, here's another Levitical law for us. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then to top it off, he ends that verse with, I am the Lord. So before you tell me how mean your neighbor is, before you tell me how ridiculous they act, before you tell me how you were done so wrong, before you try to legitimize your hatred that you have in your heart, or that anger that you are feeling, that righteous indignation, he says, you just remember I'm the Lord. You're not in charge of what is right and acceptable and what is wrong. He says in verse 23, Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. That's one of the most mistranslated verses in all of Scripture because a lot of people say, well, you know, Jesus said, if you're there at the altar to give a gift to God or sacrifice to the Lord and you realize you got something against your brother, that is not what he said. He said, if you realize your brother has something against you, he said, I don't care if he's not called. I don't care if he's not come by to make it right. You leave your gift. You go to him and you be the catalyst for making it right. This anger, this hatred, this bitterness, this acid, this burning your soul and destroying your life, it has to end. You take the initiative. You pick up the phone. You go to the house. 
He says, don't wait on them to come to you. It's pretty awesome saying that, man, I've got to go and try to make things right with somebody that may be totally in the wrong. But I've got to try to mend that relationship. Otherwise, it will continue to destroy me. He says, leave your offering there before the altar and go and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Your worship is impossible. And that's the thing that we are called to do above all else is to worship and to honor and to glorify God. That is the purpose. There's not a number two purpose. That is the purpose for every born-again child of God. And I can tell you, when you put yourself in a place where your worship is impossible, oh, you can sing. You can raise your hands. You can do all kinds of things. You can quote Scripture. You can preach. You can teach. You can do all kinds of stuff. But God says deep down it'll mean nothing because inside you're bearing that grudge or they're bearing it against you. So appropriate worship is still important. He says leave the gift, come back and give it. But reconciliation with your brother is even more important. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 25, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way. Don't wait till you get to where you're going. If you're on a journey and you know that there's a problem between you and somebody else, you need to go to them right then so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. In other words, he is trying to say this. Look, Make things right. It is just common sense. You let things fester and go on and on. They get worse. They get bigger. They grow deeper into your soul. He says, I tell you, while you're still on the way, before you even get to where you were going to meet, he says, I'm telling you right now, start trying to undo that tangle of bitterness and hatred. His whole point is basically this. Stop keeping score. Stop taking little things that people say. and You know, half the time, we really don't even know what they meant by it. They might not have even meant what you thought they said. It, 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 it's totally, sometimes, you know, we bring the significance, and, and, and the significance is what brings the pain. So, and you can do anything to me, but I don't care how deeply you cut me, I am the one that has to bring the significance. If I meet you somewhere and you don't speak to me, I'm the one that has to make the decision. Well, I guess he just thinks he's too good. Or what? I mean, I hear those kinds of things. Matter of fact, I, uh, I'm seeing better nowadays and I'm going to have some more work done soon and that's going to help me. But, so I don't always know exactly who I'm looking at or I have it up until now. <laughs> Man, I wave at everybody in Walmart. And now I've really gotten in trouble because my left eye, is I'm having surgery on it the 11th of December. But to really see things good, I have to shut it. And I have been winking at more people. I am telling you, I didn't even want to tell Loretta about all the girls that just smile. But I'm just saying to you, I'm the one. You cannot speak to me. You can say something that could be taken 10 different ways. I am the one that has to give it significance. I am the one that has to decide that, hey, you had a problem. And, and I can tell you, sometimes 
you might meet somebody and they're going down the road and, and, and they don't throw up their hand or whatever and you just make it all about you. You have no idea. And notice how angry you get and how mad you get and how you just feel like, boy, that just, that just, just galls me. They know me, see them every Sunday at church and they won't even speak to me when they're out here. And now, now think about how angry you are and just wait till you find out later that the reason that they were so focused and going so fast when you met them, they were having a heart attack and they were headed to the hospital. Now all of a sudden you don't feel bad, do you? What made you feel bad to start with? It wasn't them. It was the significance that you gave it. I know my son is tired of me talking about him in church, but he has provided a plethora of material for me down through the years. The other day, a little smart aleck looked at me and he said, I was telling him about something. I forgot what it was. I told him we were working in the shop together or something and I said, but that don't bother me. He says, is that why you're still talking about it? Now, don't you just want to strangle a young like that? Because what he said was true. Is that why you're still talking about it, Daddy? Is that why it's still on your mind? Is that why you're still bringing it up? That's the truth. And it hurts. But I'm the one that brings the significance. Man, listen. Open up your heart and realize the person that didn't speak to you or the person that said something about you or the person that whatever, you have no idea what is going on in their life. And as Christians operating within the power of God Almighty, even if they blow up and go berserk, when everybody else dives for cover, we should be the ones to walk up to them, put our arms around them and say, hey, 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 talk to me, man. This is not you. Something's going on. And I can tell you a lot of times when you walk up to somebody, and I know it's dangerous. You may get a black eye now and then. It'll heal. But when you put your arms around them and just hug them and, 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 and or take them aside and say, listen to me, this is not you. I know you better than this. There's something going on here. Man, I want to tell you, I have seen some big, old, tough men crumble and melt and go from cursing and shouting to weeping and crying because there is something going on in them. And nobody has ever cared enough to ask. Wow, that's what Jesus is trying to get us to do. Verse 26, truly I say to you, you will not come out of prison. That's where you're put until you have paid the last cent. You know, when I look around the congregation this morning, I realize some are not here because they're in jail. Now, I understand some may actually be in jail. We'll talk to Steve about that after service, but some are not here because they're in a different kind of jail. And Jesus says, that's a jail you won't get out of till this thing's over. They're in a jail where they can't come to church and sit with everybody else and be happy. They're in a jail that has bars that are thicker than steel, friend. 
and the walls are taller than concrete. They are locked into a mindset. And it's already ruined relationships. Sometimes it ruins marriages. Sometimes they've lost jobs over it. But they live in a jail to where they are subservient to the feelings and animosity. They got a chip on their shoulder. They live in that defensive mindset. And yeah, they would love to associate with other people, but they're not here today because they're mad or they're angry or they're resentful about something. Something didn't go right. What a, what a horrible prison to live in to be like that. He moves on to the second one, and I'm going to pause here. I want us to take up adultery next week. He'll move on to divorce. We'll probably do both of those next week. But I want you to just take this week and read the rest of these. It's so incredible. You know, one of the things he's going to teach us, guys, when he talks about marriage, <laughs> he's going to teach us that she is not the one because you found her. You didn't play the love lottery. and Oh, she's the one. You know what makes her the one? You married her. That makes her the one. It's not like you need to go shopping again. Well, that didn't work out. Man, I know people on their fifth and sixth marriage, and they are still looking for Mr. Quizbang. They're still looking for the right guy. I can tell you right now, this little gal right here, I'm talking about Loretta. I may have winked at some others of you this morning already, but she's the one. I'm not saying she wasn't a great find, but I can tell you she became the one the day I married her. My commitment to her makes her the one. And it's the same way, gals, with your husband. Your commitment to him makes him the one. That's how we do this thing, man. We have two extremes in our world. We either have marriages that are prearranged or either we just play the love lottery till we finally get somebody that we either love enough to keep or can't get rid of. He's going to teach us about all of those things. But I hope this morning, before we go any further, it's a great place to stop and think. What's going on inside here? Who right now came to mind during this sermon? A person that you need to go sit down with and have a conversation. And you might be waiting on them. I, I know sometimes people can be ridiculous. I got that. But instead of waiting on them, Christ says that you and I have to go to them. If they have something against us, who came to mind? What's going on in your heart right now that, man, you just, it just absolutely is eating you alive? And sometimes when you've almost forgotten about it, you might go back and resurrect that feeling because it just it almost gives you a sense of dominance in your life. Man, I'm telling you, it's killing you. It kills our churches. It kills our marriages. It ruins careers. It ruins people's lives. Learn how to let God heal those things inside you. 
And sometimes that doesn't happen until we confront the real issue. Let's bow. God, we come to you this morning, Lord. And our hearts are heavy. They're heavy for ourselves, Lord. God, you have brought deep, deep conviction in my own heart and life. I've asked you, Lord, to forgive me where what men may see on the outside, God may pass muster. It might be well appreciated, but Lord, sometimes in my heart there are things that I know are not right, God. Sometimes, Lord, I'll speak a word and I may say it in jest or act as if I'm just trying to to be funny, but Lord, I'm, I actually am calling into question someone's abilities or character, and God, that's not right. I ask you, God, to forgive me. I ask you, Lord, to help me. Help me to really, Lord, turn some things loose and just let them go. And I pray for everyone here, God, anyone in this place that has something in their heart and mind, God, that just eats away at them, but they cannot turn it loose, Lord. It's just a, it's almost as if that person has got to pay and I'm the only one that can make them do it. They hurt me worse than anybody. I pray, God, that you would set that person free. Lord, it won't happen in an instant. I know that. But I ask you right now, God, to help us as the body of Christ to begin to heal from within to stop this foolishness, Lord, of nurturing grudges and hatred in our heart, God. Set us free, Lord. Set us free, God. I pray that you would do that for us. Lord, in Jesus' precious name we ask. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at ServantsWay.com or email us at office at ServantsWay.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.